This is an ABC podcast. When a website has been accused of hosting videos of illegal, non-consensual sexual assaults of underage content, can it be turned around? Yes, this week on Download This Show, that is the question. The company behind the YouTube of porn, Pornhub, has been bought by a company claiming to be able to turn it around. So what exactly does that look like? Plus, digital tokens that you pay for, NFTs, are they really here to stay? And the AI that can write, it seems, just about anything, ChatGPT, has just evolved. Into what? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Uh, I'd like to welcome, I think, first time in the studio, Asha Babashow from Gizmodo Australia. Welcome to Download This Show. Hello, thank you for having me. The pleasure is entirely ours. And also somebody I haven't actually genuinely seen in an incredibly long time, Daniel Van Boom from uh, CNET. Thank welcome. you for having me back. I, I haven't been here in the studio in a very long time. Uh, let's talk about porn. Fair warning, if you're in the car with kids at the moment, uh, we're going to be talking about an online adult site. We're probably not going to go into the gory details, but we will be talking about a porn site. So just bear that in mind over the next kind of 10 minutes of content. Uh, Something massive happened with the owners of one of the, well, actually a few of the biggest porn websites. Uh, Daniel, what happened to MindGeek? MindGeek, which is the company that owns, among other sites, Pornhub, was bought by a private equity firm in Canada called... Ethical Capital Partners. Thank you for that. Sorry, sorry. One more time for me, Asha. I loved that. Ethical Capital Partners. Partners. I have so many thoughts on this. Carry on, Daniel. Well, the, your first thought might be, how is a company that is ostensibly about ethics now the owner of a porn site? So Pornhub has been kind of beleaguered for the past three years over the illegal content on its site. There's some non-consensual videos there. There are some videos of people who are not 18 on the site. Uh, and they've kind of historically dragged their feet about taking them off the site. And so that uh, kind of created a series of legal troubles. Visa and MasterCard uh, withdrew their services, which is uh, one of the many problems that Pornhub has had over the last three years. And one of ethical capital partners' reasons for buying it is because, well, this is according to their press release, they believe that they can make it a, a, less, a less morally dubious site. They can take better advantage of its content moderation and essentially make it more friendly side. Yeah, I should say, Asha, like when we, we raise an eyebrow at the, the ethical part of that, the, the reason we kind of have that reaction to Pornhub is not because against all porn, obviously adult content has its place, but Pornhub in particular has had a really, really nasty couple of years of things that were on that site that were, you know, desperately unethical, right? Do you think this new company can change that? Different, different strokes for different folks, as, as you said, but sometimes those strokes aren't legal. Yes. Uh, sometimes, and I guess in an ideal world, seeing fantasies play out behind a screen, if, if they are illegal, uh, we need to do something about that. Something needs to happen. However, if you come in and change what you can access easily, it just pushes people to a place that can't be accessed easily and mm. can't be legislated against or moderated as well. That's a really good point, right? So the sort of the content we're talking about, so people are not of age, non-consensual stuff, if, if it does disappear off, off a website, which has a, a company that can be regulated, is the fear that it will just end up in somewhere on the dark web or places where, you know, it's a lot harder to, to manage them. Is that is that the concern? Yeah. And I guess part of what 
ethical capital partners, and I can't say that without pausing between each word, <laughs> something that they could be working on would be age verification for underage users to make sure that the bad stuff is hidden from those that are underage. But there's a long way to go when you can't just chuck a word such as ethical in a, in a name mm. and then buy a company. So what do you think will happen then? So part of the issue over the last three years has been that a lot of the measures taken to clean up Pornhub have disproportionately affected the porn stars on the website rather than the company itself. So for instance, the Visa MasterCard thing, when that happened, Pornhub made most of its money from advertising. Obviously, it's, it's not good for their brand, but it doesn't necessarily affect their bottom line as much as the performers who, th- those performers who had subscribers, the subscribers paid in Visa MasterCard. So now the performers are, are less able to make money off the platform. Um, and so... Ethical Capital Partners has said that part of its mission statement is not only to clean up Pornhub, but it's also to make it a a better place for the performers themselves. Because like you said at the outset, part of this, this, we have to distinguish between legal pornography and very, very bad, not legal pornography. And an argument has been that over the last three years, the legal professionals have been caught up in this crossfire. And ECG has said that they're, they're kind of seeking equilibrium there, whether or not they can do it. I believe that there is also a former sex worker on the board of ECP uh, and, and then, of course, lawyers, as there is with everything venture capital-based. <laughs> lawyers involved right. in major business deals, I'm shocked. <laughs> wow. But it, it does leave you with some kind of hope that it will be cleaned up to benefit the workers, the, the people that are you know, agreeing for their content to be on the site. I suppose the other thing that probably is worth mentioning here is that all this sort of is happening in the in the shadow of, of OnlyFans, right? In the last sort of five or so years, OnlyFans, amongst other things, has actually provided a really interesting model for adult performers, for sex workers to uh, own their relationship with their um, customers. And, you know, obviously none, none of these platforms are perfect, but it has, actually has provided a fairly clear mechanism for, for sex workers to, to interact with their with their clientele. I mean, is, is that something that Pornhub is, and MindGeek is possibly looking at going, well, more and more people are kind of moving towards that platform. Is there a way we can own some of that business? Do you think that's likely something that they're looking at or am I re- overreaching there? Yeah, I think a big part of that is the uh, know your customer standards of OnlyFans. So if you want to sign up as a creator, you have to go through a, a, a semi-strenuous prove you are this person kind of process. Whereas the root problem that Pornhub had was that anybody could upload videos. You only had to provide your personal information if you wanted to monetize your content. Pornhub has moved towards more of like a subscriber model, but I think just making it so one of the things that have changed in the last few years is that you can no longer, as an unverified user, uh, upload content. You have to do a basic, like, know your customer check before you allow them to do so. So it may not be as subscriber-y as OnlyFans is, but in terms of knowing who the people posting content is, I think it is moving in that direction. As a creator on OnlyFans, would you then move to somewhere like uh, Pornhub's version of if you you would be taking less money, less because I'm sure Pornhub would be taking more of a cut than OnlyFans does? I wonder if the trade-off there is discoverability. Yeah. Because the sheer number of people that are on MindGeek's sites would massively outweigh the number of people that are on OnlyFans. And I think discoverability, because the sheer traffic might be the value to content creators in that scenario. I guess the casual users of a site like Pornhub versus the you know, those that are subscribed to certain creators on OnlyFans, I, yeah. And, and it's not an either or, much like a Uber and Didi driver, you know, drives for both sites, probably have a little bit yeah. of both. Is just worth underscoring how much 
legal trouble MindGeek has been in mm. in the last three years. Uh, they have um, a suit against them in New York, which has 33 plaintiffs. They have a suit against them in, in Canada, in California, in Alabama, over, uh, you know, minors being unable to have their videos removed from the site. Things like very bad problems. From their press release, Ethical Capital Partners, uh, saying it slowly again, their, their official line was they wanted to have a leading role in the fight against illegal content across the internet. So it seems that there's this very, very thick line that they want to portray that they're going to push everything that's bad on on, on the bye-bye side of that line and, and keep the stuff that... Uh, I guess, is allowed and fixes their image. But can they fix their image? Well, one of the things pointed out before was by you, Asha, actually, uh, was that this is their first acquisition. So we have no track record to base on. So, As every lazy news story under the sun has ever ended, time will tell. And no doubt uh, we'll be back here discussing it in the coming months and years as we see how that deal plays out. Download this show is what you listen to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, Asha Babashow from Gizmodo Australia and Daniel Van Boom from CNET. And this week saw a brand new version of Skynet. I mean, ChatGPT uh, launch. Asha, what's actually come out? Yeah, so we've got ChatGPT4. The easiest way to describe what that is is just the same as you get a new phone every year. It has a new number at the end of it. This version of the software has a new number as well. We have sort of been talking about ChatGPT on the show. It's the AI that you can log on to and it can do... It's a, it's a language model, right? So you can ask it, like, rewrite this sentence in iambic pentamina. Uh, tell me a story in the version of Dr. Seuss. It's very good at that kind of stuff. But there are some changes with this new iteration, including what, Asha? So this new model is capable of handling over 25,000 words of text. What we, you said before, it was eight times? Yes, eight times. Before, it, it could only answer 3,000 words. Now 25,000. Now 25,000. If you want a long read. So you can write a novel. So that, it, there's also another component to it as well, that it can do pictures as well. Is that right? Yeah, so before, uh, ChatGPT could only respond to language queries, whereas now you can put in pictures and it can react to that. It can understand the kind of context within a picture. So the example they use is if you have a picture of balloons uh, and you ask ChatGPT, what will happen if I cut the thing tying the balloons down? ChatGPT can say, It'll, the balloons will fly away. So it can read images and interpret them. I think the craziest improvements to GPT-4, it can do some pretty wild coding. So because ChatGPT is a language model and coding is essential, are essentially languages, it, it can code as well as it can speak and it can speak pretty good. Examples they used in their presentation of it was you can kind of scribble out a layout for a website on a piece of paper and put that photo into ChatGPT and it can code a website to look roughly like that. People have made iOS apps, and the apps are basic, like they're not super crazy apps, but people have made iOS apps in 20, 30 minutes that are like, recommend me five movies a day. That was a popular one. But, you know, they're the type of thing where you don't really need to know how to code to do that. So you can do a lot. And something like coding is just so prone to errors. And even the professionals get it wrong sometimes. But this AI can do it perfectly. GPT-4 is better at taking direction. So Previously, if, if GBT3 would make an error in its coding and you said, hey, man, that's actually a backslash, not a forward slash, it could kind of freak out. Whereas now it's, oh, let me fix that for you. And even vague things like, like I said before, you make an app and then you can say something like, nah, I think it would be better with a lighter color scheme. It can, it can change the color scheme like that. So it can make some pretty drastic changes off your feedback. 
it can it can respond to suggestions or it can respond to comments on the fly rather than you having to explain that oh, in a perfect sentence. Ridiculous. I when I'm planning out, you know, stuff, I often write in, in dot point. And just as an experiment, because like, I had to basically churn out this 25-page thing, but I had all the work done. I'd done all the sort of the research for it. And just as an experiment last night, I put the dot points in there and I said, <laughs> my direction to it was, make this sound majestic. <laughs> and I came, and the thing that blows my mind about it was like, it, it comes back at you like, I don't know what to change. Like, I don't know what to make it better. It's that terrible thing when technology reaches the moment where it's it's equal parts, like a bit terrifying, but also so useful. How should I feel about that, Asha? Yeah, look, I was thinking about this as well, what I would do to make the constraints better or even make the system better. And I can't think of anything outside of making sure that the data that it is fed is not incorrect or biased. But you have access to both sides of the both sides of the story on Google yourself mm. already. So, how do you then go about regulating the information that's on the internet, which is a whole other can of worms? Yeah. How would you make it better in terms of to to make sure that it is pulling the right resources? Like I would never trust it with facts or details. Like I would feed it facts and go make this read like I Shakespeare wrote it. Like I would do that. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, while we're on that topic, I was reading the book Why Nations Fail and I put in, summarise Why Nations Fail in Eminem verse. (laughs) And it did. It really, really did. Do you have a copy of that to recite here? Well, we've got a laptop. We can can chat GPT right now. It's pretty wild. You know, like chat GPT-4, which is a crazy one they just released, they finished that. It's, It's not new. It's not their newest model. And I think every time it will get more and more accurate. And even now, it's like quite accurate. Um, even if it's, say, like 85% accurate and it gets 5% more accurate every time, it's like, I feel like that's one of those like matter of time questions, you know? Firstly, I think anyone who claims to be able to predict how this will affect like life in general is probably lying or trying to sell you something. Mm-hmm. And speaking of which... Or both, if you're, or, if you're lucky. Or both. Speaking and, of which, you're trying to sell us something? Yeah. yeah, well, there's a lot of like hustle culture that's kind of already mm. around ChatGBT, like how to make $12,000 in a day using ChatGBT. So I think there will be a lot of obviously amazing use by creative people to make themselves a a lot more efficient, i.e. the ability for non-developers to now make an app that fits into some other pursuit that they're doing, which is great. But there's also going to be a much higher percentage of Twitter and YouTube accounts that are trying to teach you how to get rich real quick with ChatGPT. It seems like everything that we're talking about, what we want is for there to be a human fact-checker. Before yes. something happens. Yes. I, and I think that that is increasingly going to become our role. It's like yeah. our, it, you can make a thing, but then I'm going to check your, your thing. All right. Can we just do a quick Skynet check on this? Um, this has obviously been a significant development with ChatGPT. Are we feeling like we are closer or further away from the AI apocalypse than we were last week? Definitely closer, but mm-hmm. it's a matter of how much closer. Sam Altman, the head of OpenAI, which is the company that makes it, did an interview with ABC and he just straight up, ABC, the American ABC, and he was just straight up like, yeah, I'm pretty scared, but hey, we got to do our best right to like make this safe and it's like it's a pretty suspicious thing like a pretty ominous red flag for the creator of this program to you know state i think we're a bit closer but like you know a fraction of a percent closer it's not like next week i like when i said can we do a skynet check actually you were just like shaking your head it's like do you want are you worried about offending the ai (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, since I've been writing about technology, AI isn't anything new. No. Uh, companies have been dealing in it for, for a very long time. Amazon is kind of the, the best example of this, suggesting things that you could buy before you even know you wanted to buy them was, was the first real experience that we had. And then we've got uh, Netflix doing the same. They're all examples of AI. I think it's just because it seems to be learning at an exponential rate, even though it's not sentient. It seems to be capable of doing things like never before. Mm. There's, of course, going to be the the fear surrounding it. Hey, AI has been like a hype word for a very long time to where you're like, oh, yeah, AI, cool. But then ChatGPT and also some of the, the image creators that have come around in the last year, I, I feel like are real moments of like, oh, AI. Obviously, a lot of people compare it to the Industrial Revolution, but to do that again, <laughs> uh I feel like it has the risk of disrupting many disparate industries at the same time. Mm. And I think there's like a, a risk to social order that could come from that. That, that I feel like, is the, the scary one. The democratisation, so the access that people have to this as well, is something that hasn't really been the case uh, as, as every single example that we had used. It was being used on us. Like when you talked right. about Amazon and Netflix, it was being used on us. This is the first time we get to interact with it and we get results out of it. So we can only, we can only hope that our fellow humans use it for good. Oh, okay. Don't make me put my hope <laughs> faith in fellow humans. When does that ever work? I don't know. I'm convincing myself. <laughs> <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to. Uh, it is your guide to the week in media, technology, culture and apocalyptic predictions. Uh, our guests this week, Daniel Van Boom from CNET and Asha Babashow from Gizmodo Australia and NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Yes, you were stuck in a corner at a party while some dude talked to you about it ad nauseum and you hated yourself for being there. But now somebody is turning their back on NFTs and that somebody is Meta, who owned Facebook. I said a bunch of words there, not a lot of them made sense. Let's go back. Let's just start with NFTs. What actually are they? Bring us up to speed, Daniel. Yeah, NFTs are non-fungible tokens. So they are tokens on the blockchain that signify ownership of a good. So they are to a digital item what a deed to land is. Um, They are not the, the physical item itself. And so the idea of NFTs is that you can introduce degree of scarcity to a to digital assets, which previously digital assets couldn't attain. It became really popular around art, for example. Yeah, you know, so- digital art is like, well, it's a JPEG now. Anybody can share it. The introduction of a structure like a non-fungible token is say, no, 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 only one person owns that JPEG. And if you're thinking to yourself, that sounds strange and completely unenforceable, that's because I think it is. But Daniel, feel free to defend it in other terms. So like, I think part of the issue with NFTs when people talk about it is distinguishing the logic of how they work versus the pricing of them. So if you just take away the exorbitant prices that people paid for them, for instance, Board Ape Yacht Club NFTs, which launched at $250, they're a collection of 10,000 ape cartoons, at their peak were 400,000 USD, so 600,000 Australian dollars. But then uh, they have, quote, utility, I'm doing air marks, where If you have the NFT, you can get like merch and you can get into events and stuff. Not saying that's worth $600,000. If the NFT was worth $5, you know, maybe that's a different thing. But that's where that kind of idea of like you owning the thing is different from you right-click saving it because, you know, owning the token gets you access to whatever its creators are are selling you. So, Asha, it was a much hyped and also much derided new sort of category of things that people could throw their money at. But um, Meta did get on board, Meta, who of course owned Facebook, but what's happened this week? They wanted to focus on different areas. Um, I I don't have a Facebook, but if I did, I'm sure that those other areas would be this Metaverse passion project. Um, What's interesting here is 
to to the outside, NFTs and metaverse both come under this Web3 banner. And it seemed that the Zuckerberg collective didn't want to kind of let people that were into the NFT part not have a space to interact because it did overlap with the, with the metaverse. But now he's shuffling out of NFTs and focusing harder on, on the metaverse itself, which is a digital online world where you can't own little bits like you can with an NFT. Yeah, the, the phrase metaverse has been like argued over like, like a piece of land for, for many, many years. But I think in this case, it's not... I th- actually think they're pivoting away from the metaverse because Facebook's lost all, all that money... Uh, or not lost, sorry. It's made all that less money. Um, and now they're trying to do the year of efficiency thing. But yeah, uh, so I think they're focusing more on MetaPay, you know, if you're into that. So you can pay people via Facebook Messenger, also if you're into that. Yeah, I'm not into any of that. Yeah. The, so. verific- the verification to prove that you are who you say you are. Everything. Literally everything we've talked about since I said the word NFTs. has been quite bad. Well, no, it sounds like a house of cards, right? Metaverse, uh, MetaPay, MetaVerify and NFTs. They mm. all sound like things that don't need to exist. For sure. So I think um, NFTs obviously were like 95% speculation, like 95% of the people who bought them, of which there are only about 2 million people. Like it's not, like a, it's not actually like a massive thing. It's a very small amount of people who use the internet who also have bought an NFT. Um, but I would, I would wager that 95 to 99% of them were buying it for the simple purpose of maybe I can sell this for more money later, more money later. Um, and then you have a very small subsect of people who want to use it as their Twitter profile picture because it, it's like a Rolex. It, you're able to say like, Look, I'm pretty important. I have this two hundred thousand dollar CryptoPunk, which is my which is my Twitter picture. But I think if NFTs were to become a thing, it's more going to be a gaming thing. Which is funny because every time any gaming company has tried to integrate NFTs, they have been like very strongly rebuffed by the audience. Um, but I don't think Meta closing down its its uh, NFT thing. Um, is really that big of a deal. I think uh, if if we're talking about the long-term survival of NFTs, it's more about whether companies like Square Enix, which they make like the Final Fantasy games, they're currently pivoting to NFTs and want them in their games. So whether or not you know they can make them accessible, not so much the the Facebook crowd, because the Facebook crowd was for the hundred thousand dollar NFTs that only like a dozen people were buying anyway. You know, it was sorry playing devil's advocate. It's also about community. So if you have one of those ape NFTs, you did want to. Be be part or do, I, I assume, want to be part of that community and hang out in spaces where others that did as well. And I guess on Facebook, that allowed those NFT owners to hang out in spaces where I keep saying hang out in spaces, it's it's online. But to be around and chat with people that have similar interests to them, I think not having support anymore for the NFTs will still allow those people to have their online community. Um, they just might have to upload it in a more fungible, fungible, fungible. I want to go with fungible. Fungible dot JPEG. Because the more it sounds like a bacterial infection, the more accurate I think that is to what it is. Play out for me, NFT. Like I'm, <laughs> I don't know if you're picking up on my skepticism. I don't really get it, uh, and I'm just happy to be upfront with that. But tell me if I'm wrong. Like, tell me if you think NFTs are here to stay, Asha. I don't think so. I, I haven't understood them since the first time I heard about them. But the same way that. You don't understand maybe why I have an NRL footy card from 1996 that I think is worth money. It's valuable to you and your community. It's not valuable to those on the outside. That's beautiful and I hope you take care of your card. (laughs) Thank you. 
Um, I think NFTs will be around for a very long time. Whether they are valued as highly as they currently are is a separate question. Um, I think people's enthusiasm to speculate and get rich quick will kind of allow them to stay around for quite a while yet until they get regulated out of out of existence. I do think there is one possibility of them becoming an actual thing, a modest thing, but an actual thing, which is, like I said before, in video games. Important as well to remember that something that is valuable to you isn't valuable to someone else. It could also be valuable to the communities, and I'm using that word again, that you hang out in. Just the same as a footy card, for example, from 1996, might not be valuable to anybody that does not care one bit about Australian sport, but to you, your friends, those that grew up playing footy in the 90s, it might be exceptionally valuable and even have a price tag, you know, in the thousands. I think it's very important to draw similarities from the real world to this digital world with why people want to collect stuff that might just seem like a digital image to to, to you. I would uh, definitely agree with everything Asher just said, but I think the other thing to note is that NFTs are more like luxury items. I think in the same way that, like, the amount of people who care about car... Like, for instance, every time I personally, Daniel Van Boom, see a Lamborghini drive down the street, I'm like, weird. But there's a, a subsect of people who are like, wow, that's the coolest thing ever because it, it has a certain, like, luxury vibe to it. And NFTs, it's a mixing of the luxury item that is a signification to, like, a small group of people with the community vibe that you described. I think also the ability to display your NFTs on something like Twitter, something like Facebook is very similar to why I wear band t-shirts. I want people to know that I have really good taste in music. I do. Um, But I want people to know that. Um, And I'm sure that if I spent an exorbitant amount of money on something that others see as pointless, myself included, um, that I would want people to see that. Yeah. Okay. I still don't like them. But I do think the point of it being something that has uh, value points akin to luxury items but also something that expresses who you are and where you put your your care and your energy and your money, I think that is kind of an interesting way of, of thinking about it. I never thought that I would be sitting anywhere, anywhere appearing that I'm defending NFTs. <laughs> and that, Download the show's a weird place. <laughs> uh, you've, you've, brought out a, you, you, you've brought out a different side to me I didn't know existed. I'm, I'm not trying to defend it because I do think that it has been, just like everything, if you use it for what it's meant for, if you use it for, for good, it's great. But if you exploit it, if people come in and try and monetize things that shouldn't be monetized, it's just a cash grab for, for those outside of these Small examples that we're using in... Oh, yeah, NFTs, like I say, are 99-ish percent cash grab speculation. But the 1%, you know, there's a legitimate 1%. I have a good thing to end on if you want to add a positive note. No, the whole point of the show is we always end with it being an apocalypse and everything's bad and all Mark Zuckerberg's fault. You know that. All right, well... Never mind then. <laughs> now go on, go on. Give, give me your positive note. No, um, when NFTs uh, started being a thing, um, Ethereum was a massive, massive carbon suck. Uh, so NFTs, like 90 plus percent of them are built off the um, Ethereum cryptocurrency because until recently, you know what? I was going to talk about Bitcoin, but that is a separate thing, which is a rabbit hole and let's not do that. <laughs> but so yeah, Ethereum is mostly where NFTs are. And in the last two years, they've up, they, uh, the Ethereum Foundation have, has updated Ethereum, so now it's 99% carbon neutral. So that's happy. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the, the Ethereum blockchain is needed to record this digital ownership that can't be funged. Funged. Yeah. Funged. 
Yeah. See, funged? Funged is a fun word to end on. I, f- I feel it's, yeah, Let's do that. less growthy. Um, it's my my, fault. I'm going to end on, while we were chatting, I did ask uh, ChatGPT to uh, explain NFTs in one word as if it was William Shakespeare and it said, a digital token unique and rare that doth confer ownership beyond compare. And I think that's pretty and explains it kind of well. And with that weirdness, uh, I'm going to end the show. A uh, very big thank you to Daniel Van Boom from CNET. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And Asha Babashow, reluctant defender of NFTs. Yes, we will endorse you for that on LinkedIn. From Gizmodo Australia. You're shaking your head being like, why? No, no, we won't do that. Asha Babashow from Gizmodo Australia. Thanks so much for joining us on Download the Show. Thank you for having me. It was fun, even though all I seemed to do was defend NFTs. Do you know what? It's fine. It makes it makes it it makes us all weird eventually. Uh, my name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.